Let's pray together as we come to the Word. Loving God, we confess that we are so filled with everything else that we barely notice what you're up to or what you offer us. Lord, would you forgive both our indifference and our blindness to your glory. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Well, like some of you, I grew up in church, although I'm betting if I described my particular tradition to you, you'd waver between pure amazement and uh, also deep concern for me. Um, I've occasionally expressed it as well to the right of Southern Baptists. <laughs> so catch your breath. Let's just... Uh, and when I do that, that's when I get the blank stares, the mild gas, or maybe laughing like you just did. The conversation takes an awkward turn. They don't know what to do with me at that point. What does that even look like? Well, we all have our ecclesiastical skeletons, I suppose. Um, that's just describes the surface of mine. In my tradition, we have some favorite biblical texts that made regular appearances in sermons, Bible studies. The Great Commission was one. Uh, Galatians on the arm of the Lord, that made a frequent appearance. And of course, children obey your parents. That was, uh, that's, the one I, that's the one I heard the most in. The wedding at Cana in John 2 was not one of those passages. Now I knew the story, so it must have been read at least sometimes. But when someone needed to hear a clearly articulated statement of the gospel, the good news of Jesus for the world, well, we didn't go to John 2 and the wedding at Cana. And I think there were lots of reasons for this. Uh, one is that my tradition viewed consuming alcohol as a sin. Not just an unwise personal decision, mind you, but one of the worst things you could do as a Christian. As a young child, I remember walking through the grocery store regularly, and one authority in my life, who shall remain unnamed, told me constantly not to even look at the beer in the cooler, lest I be tempted by it. I mean, they were serious about this. Now, for somebody who believes that, it's more than slightly challenging to make sense that the Savior of the world would miraculously turn good, healthy water into Satan's device. <laughs> so, we were told to get out of this, to wiggle their way out of it a little bit. It wasn't wine like we know it. It was pretty much Welch's grape juice. Because Jesus wouldn't drink alcohol. Okay. And then, why would John want to highlight this one strange story right out of the gate? He's starting off his gospel. You need to grab the attention of your readers. And this is what he tells Certainly there were more significant and serious miracles and signs and sermons that Jesus gave that should have had the prominence of the opening vignette in the gospel of John. I mean, he healed the lame the blind, by merely speaking to them or even about them. He fed 5,000 plus with a small lunch. 
He raised Lazarus from the dead, for goodness sake. Surely that would arrest our attention. Tell us that story first, John. A story like Lazarus would help us connect the theological dots between Jesus being that John posits in his prologue in chapter 1 and his action in the world as he moved among humans as a human. Now that makes sense to me. The word of John 1 is the one who raises the dead. You told us all this heavy stuff in John 1. Now show us how he did it. Well, Lazarus, that's the story to tell. But instead, the wedding at Cana, with the wedding at Cana, John risks something. He risks his readers thumbing their nose at the word. I mean, really, Jesus? I mean, this is a bit more like a party trick, isn't it? Is that all you've got? You think doing this at a wedding, we're going to suddenly follow you? Think about the history of Israel. Moses, what did he do in front of Pharaoh? Moses parted the Red Sea. He turned an entire river into blood. And you've only changed 120 to 160 gallons of water into wine. And don't forget, for a while, even the Egyptian priests went toe-to-toe with Moses and his miracles. I mean, you can almost hear them say, No, John, if you want us to buy this word was with God and the word was God business, we need a bit more than a magic trick at a wedding. (coughs) Besides this, turning water into wine, while somewhat impressive, just seems utterly trivial. Why bother? Here's an ordinary wedding, undocumented by historians. We have no idea the names of the bride and groom. The master of the ceremonies, who was that guy? The parents? What's the relationship of any of those people to Jesus? We have no idea. The party has gone on for days, and the host is humiliated because he runs out of wine for the guests. Now, that's an embarrassment. It's a faux pas, to be sure, in that culture, but not the worst failure in the world, especially not one that requires the miraculous services of the Son of God. It just seems to be a trivial thing. And even beyond that, let's be honest. Jesus really shouldn't even be in an event like this. No doubt the revelry was unbecoming for a rabbi of his stature. A celebration, think about it, where there was so much alcohol being consumed that the custom was to wait until everyone was completely wasted to bring out then the inferior wine because no one would be sober enough to notice it. You think I'm joking. Go read the text again. Is this the kind of place that the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, through whom God created the world, should even be? Much less contributing to the festivities? My spiritual forebears couldn't fathom the thought. Thus, Welch's grape juice. But in the middle of this nondescript event, we encounter the first of Jesus' signs to the world about who he really was. 
And St. John says in verse 11 that in doing this, he manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. An average day, in an average village, where an everyday couple tied the knot, the glory of the God who created the universe gets revealed. Now, who would have imagined such a thing? Now, in St. John's Gospel, glory and belief found in this little phrase in verse 11 are heavily weighted terms with huge theological significance, both for us now and for the age to come. So, it seems rather odd to say that the unmitigated inebriation of dozens of partygoers constitutes the manifestation of the glory of God in the world. But there must be more here than meets the eye. It must mean that this really isn't about helping some friends out of a jam or Jesus' ability to change a liquid's molecular composition. St. John must be saying more. He must be saying to us, you want me to get to the point? You really want to know what the bottom line is? Okay, here it is. Maybe you didn't catch it in chapter 1. But I'll tell you this story about this wedding. This is what it's really all about. And that's what the wedding of Cana is. It is about glory and belief and rectification. Things being set right. It's about feasting and weddings and good wine and blood and a cross. And who's really in charge in this world? It's about getting married to God for eternity. Maybe some of our struggle with this story is its extravagance. I mean, that's a lot of wine. Especially when there's already been a lot of wine, and we think it wiser for Jesus to say, enough's enough, go sleep it over. But instead he pours it on. Gallons and gallons in order to be absolutely sure that no one is excluded. And everyone gets their fill. I mean, he could have taken only one of the wine jars and filled it up. That would have been plenty. And you still would have had the miracle. The water would have been turned into wine. But he got all of the water pots. 160 gallons. A clear symbol to us that there is an extravagance, an over-the-top nature about the kingdom of God. A preposterous amount of wine when the guests were already smashed. More and more wine and more wine and yet another cup of wine. There was seemingly no end to the wine that Jesus provided. The jars were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Purification that was necessary to come into worship. These jars were a sign that people were interested in and willing to come close to God, get close to God. And the Talmud gives very detailed instructions about the purification for worship. Only, interestingly, a small cup 
of that water was needed to purify even a hundred people. Just a very small amount. But in, but in Cana, Jesus provides enough water and then wine to purify the whole world. Anyone and everyone could have come from all of Israel and beyond and been purified that day. And they would have had wine. The whole world. Maybe he's trying to tell us something here. I've always been fascinated by Jesus' response to Mary. Did you hear it? It was abrupt. Felt a little harsh, didn't it? I mean, that's his mom. Woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet coming. Now, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us for him to respond in this way. I mean, what do you mean that my hour has not come? These people just wanted to save face, to have some more wine. But he wasn't telling her that he wasn't going to get involved because he immediately then gives instructions to the servants to fill up the water jars and give them wine. So what's Jesus thinking about here? He's at a different level, clearly. He's at a different level than just the absence of wine at the wedding. I think the clue is in this little phrase, my hour. In the Gospel of John, when, whenever Jesus refers to my hour, he's always referring to his own death. His hour was his divine appointment with the cross where he would bleed and die. So, if I can bottom line it, what he seems to be saying to Mary is, I can't give you my wine just yet. Because my hour is not yet come. You need wine. I do have wine to give. But it's not my time yet. My hour is not here. The wine of my blood is what I'm really here to give you. And you'll have to wait for that. My hour is not yet come. But, at your request, and because of the need, for now, I'll give you a sign. A sign of what that wine will be like. I'll give you a taste. And it's the best one. It's so good that even when you've had your fill with all the other good stuff this world has to offer, and you're drunk on all the inferior wines out there, my wine will grab your heart and cause you to be amazed and rejoice. That is exactly what happens at Canaan that day. Jesus gives a sign of what the wine of his blood tastes like. The master of the feast marvels at it. This just doesn't happen, he says. This wine is different. And later on, during their final Passover meal, Jesus takes the cup of wine and tells his disciples that the wine is his blood. Drink up, he says. Wine, blood, Jesus. Enough for the whole world. See, rather than 
become bothered by the extravagance of wine, we have to remember that the wine itself isn't the point of the story. John says this is a sign, a sign that's there to pull us into a different reality, to jolt us out of the normal way of seeing the world, and to impress upon us that the real world is more than our finite minds could ever comprehend. And I'm afraid the point of the story isn't that Jesus has to take the basic stuff of our, has the power to take the basic stuff of our life and turn it into something delicious. Although he does. We don't need to individualize it too much. Jesus is saying, He is the real purification. And there's enough of Him to go around. John says that in this He manifested His glory. The glory of God is a gendered ancient Jew who comes to a world that's full of human beings who are drunk with all the pleasures and gods this world has to offer, and he insists on them drinking his wine, the wine of his blood, the wine that causes them to have their eyes open and their senses enthralled so that now they understand there's never been a wine like his wine. Have you ever tasted that wine? The kind that would grab hold of your heart and would cause you to run after him and to leave all that the world has to offer. And the glory of God broke out during this out-of-the-way party in a small, obscure village in a country about a tenth of the size of Oregon. In the way that St. John the Apostle, the one who lay on Jesus' breast, wanted the world to know who God is and what he's all about, was to tell us this story. How does it work? What kind of God is this? I can't help but wonder if God is still interested in his glory breaking out today. Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Interestingly, those are the last words we have of Mary in recorded scripture. This from the one who chatted with Gabriel and was impregnated by the Spirit of God. Wouldn't you expect something a bit more from her, a bit deeper, Worthy of an inspirational quote, goes viral on Facebook. Don't we need something else? She's the Theotokos, the mother of God. Instead, just do whatever he tells you. And they did. They did the absurd. They filled up all six jars. Why would he tell us to do this? Of all things, seems useless. Not to mention exhausting work. But they did. And the glory of God broke out. For better or for worse, God has chosen to do His work in the world through people like you and me. He has united Himself to us. 
so that when He wants His glory to shine, He does it through servants who just do whatever He tells them to do. The Spirit of God fills the people of God with the life of Christ so that when we do whatever He tells us to do, the glory of God tends to break out. Sometimes we are instrumental in it all, and sometimes we just happen to be there when God's Spirit decides to do something. Some years ago, when I was in vocational church ministry, one Sunday I was standing by the door of the church, uh, speaking to folks at the end of worship, and off to the side I noticed a young man whom I did not recognize. He was waiting for an opportunity to chat. He looked nervous made me a bit nervous. Uh, he asked if we could speak privately, which made me even more nervous. But we did. We found an empty office, and he proceeded to tell me how he got there that day. His wife was a traveling nurse. He was kind of along for the ride. He didn't attend any church, and before that day, he hadn't really believed in God. Not with any sort of seriousness. For some reason he couldn't express, he got up that Sunday morning and decided he was going somewhere to church. And he found hours on the internet. He realized he wasn't very far away and he walked a mile or so to get there, passing several other churches along the way. He told me that something had happened to him that morning that he couldn't understand and he wondered if I might explain it to him. He said that as he sat through the service, he seemed to lose sense of where he was and what was happening. He said, no offense, Pastor, I honestly couldn't tell you anything you said today. I don't know why he had to throw that in. <laughs> that was extraneous information. But he went on, at some point in the service, I started writing down what was coming to mind about God and what needed to be different about my life. And he read his list to me. It was a list of repentance of sin, and it was an expression of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't have those exact words in his vocabulary, but that's where it was. And I did my best to stumble along and explain more about Christ and faith. And as the conversation was ending, he stopped before he left the office and he said, I really should tell my friends about this, don't you think? <laughs> I do. And on an average day, in an average church, in an average town, while we were just doing whatever God told us to do, glory broke out. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.